What is up, Brad fans? How you doing? So glad you're back for this episode. And the intro is going to be short because this guest needs very little introduction. I am speaking today with Jay Ingram, renowned science communicator. If you grew up in Canada in the 90s, 2000s, when I did, you will know Jay if you had any interest in science, either from Quirks and Quirks, the CBC radio show, or his hosting of Daily Planet, one of the first, if not the first, daily science news show that was uh, that ran on Discovery Channel. Jay has also written several books. He appears in live speaking events. He is part of Beakerhead, a science festival that is run in Calgary, my hometown. And Jay also has a podcast, Anthropomania, which he hosts with Nikki Wilson, another great writer and science communicator, which explores the weird and interesting ways humans interact with animals. You can find Anthropomania anywhere you get podcasts. Just give it a search. Uh, look in the show notes. We'll have a link for it there. Season two wrapped up just a couple weeks ago, and I spoke with Jay right before the release of the last episode. So our conversation's a couple weeks old, and we talked about the themes of many of the episodes of this season. Trash animals how our lifestyle, how our waste is influencing different animals. Uh, we talked about de-extinction. Will it work? Does it work? What's the point? Uh, we talked about wildlife documentaries. Who are they good for? What are they good for? And we talked about the insect apocalypse, the decline of bugs all around the world. What does this mean for us? Hint, hint, it's not good. Uh, we weaved through many of these topics, bringing things together when we could, and I just really love talking to Jay. It's always such a good time to speak with him, so I wanted to thank him once again for coming on the show, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation. But first, as always, please head on over to the website, tobradforyou.wordpress.com. There you can find ways to follow the show on any podcast app. Just look for Two Brad for you on any podcast app, and you will also be able to follow the show that way. Uh, rate, subscribe, give us a comment. All that stuff really, really helps. And then, yes, website, twobradforyou.wordpress.com. You can find the many different ways you can get in touch with us. Social media, at twobradforyou. Email, twobradforyou at gmail.com. And there's a link to a voicemail page on the website, twobradforyou.wordpress.com. Leave us a message. I love hearing from you all. Uh, I love getting the messages, getting the emails. And when appropriate, I will address your topics on the show and play your voice messages. Thank you so much, everyone, for reaching out, for listening, for following, for subscribing, rating, all of those things. And now, my conversation with Jay Ingram. All right, Jay. Hey, thanks. Thanks for being here. Uh, I think this is like the third or fourth time you've joined me for the podcast. So you are now the, you know, you were competing with John Gilliard for the most frequent guest. I think you've got it now. So thank you for being here yeah, again. Well, I, I'll, I'll make sure I notify John about that. <laughs> I, <think laughs> I just spoke my, to him. This is my annual visit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and coincidentally, uh, Anthropomania season two has uh, released, what was it, a couple weeks ago now. So you're right in the thick of it. Yep, we've, um, we, as we talk right now, um, on the 16th of May, we've, we've dropped five of six episodes and next Tuesday will be our sixth on Fungi. And nice. um, it's been a really, it's been an interesting season from a couple of points of view. One is that the 
diversity of topics. I mean, I don't know if it's different from season one, but, you know, we did everything this year from looking at taking a close look at wildlife documentary making and does it actually do the wildlife any good? Or, you know, what are we in? What are we in this business for anyway? Uh, Self-gratification or an honest, an honest effort to, um, to highlight the importance of conservation or what? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there's, a, of course, an interesting history going back to Jacques Cousteau and uh, Marlon Perkins' uh, ongoing, long-running series in the 50s and I think early 60s, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, mm-hmm. it's called, and, and even Disney. You know, uh, one, of the, um, one of the first nature films of any kind I watched was something called Nature's Half Acre. It actually won a, an Oscar in the early 50s. And it was just like 32 minute. You can still see, you can see it in, on YouTube. It's worth hmm. a shot for anyone who's interested in, uh, you know, the gigantically expensive and luscious um, David Attenborough uh, BBC shows. But this was a pretty, a pretty interesting attempt. And Walt Disney himself apparently was a, a real animal lover and was a big, big supporter. Um, so they did their true life adventures series and uh, nature's half acre was one anyway that was only one we did one on chickens because in north america at least there's a boom in backyard chickens people although Mm -hmm. there's an avian flu issue right now in north america associated mostly with migrating birds flying northward interacting with chickens geese whatever barnyard birds so that that's been a bit of a crisis more than a million birds have have been uh, slaughtered in just the province of Alberta where I live now. But, you know, chickens, like, they have a pretty intriguing, amazing history going back uh, a few millennia. And, um, I mean, I won't go into the whole thing. I encourage people to listen to Got to listen to the show. <laughs> but, um, you know, the idea that when they were first, when, when we first, oh, and I should just say parenthetically that... Um, Anthropomania is really always focused on the peculiar nature of our human interaction and thoughts about wildlife. So we first got, we humans first got involved in uh, chickens uh, as cockfighting. And that was a, that was a huge deal. Not eggs, not, not, not eggs, not meat. No, no. The first record of it is, is the fighting. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) You know, there are people who argue that even today, um, those roosters who are involved in cockfights have a better life than factory chickens. Because they're I could see actually, it, yeah. you know, they live a luxurious life for two years until they're ready to fight. And if they lose the fight while they're dead, so they still had a good two years. Actually, it's not that great if they win the fight either, probably, because <laughs> all that happens is they get to fight again and again until they die. So it's a peculiar, to me, super peculiar way of interacting with another species. Uh, On the factory broiler chicken side, the average size of a broiler chicken, at least in North America, and this is probably true of Europe too, is four times than it was in the 50s. And so you've, you've had this enormous push to breed and feed and house chickens so that they just become... Are they really living organisms anymore? They're basically 
a way of converting bird seed and uh, food like that into protein for humans for for a brief yeah. unfortunate time because it's usually only months usually only weeks actually they actually exist as i put quotes around this birds um, 23 billion chickens in the world it's the most populous bird and it might be by mass the species with the biggest amount of biomass in the world yeah. so um you know chickens <laughs> it's not i mean none of that is 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 overly uh surprising i think when you when you think about it and you look at if you've done any sort of reading on domestication of you know agriculture animals as all these issues come in but the just the i mean i would have i would have put thousand dollars on people who have been raising chickens from time immemorial or whatever like that not fighting them I, I definitely would have picked that that would have come later. So it's interesting to go from, yeah, like whoever noticed like, hey, you know, we're fighting these birds. Why don't we eat them? Yeah, I suspect that realization <laughs> sooner rather than later. I mean, the original... When you got a bunch of dead birds piling <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, you could put them in a landfill, and that was what we talked about in one of our episodes trash animals well yeah i actually have an an, an anecdote i was going to run by you about that because here in germany one of the things i love about uh germany is the amount of of birds they have a lot of wild birds big big birds birds of prey uh, and i notice them more here than i do back home you know we have lots of other great big wildlife in canada but i notice here birds big eagles hawks things that i don't see on the regular uh back in canada and there's a few in my neighborhood even and, and i'm convinced that it's the same same ones every year and i'm pretty sure it's not an eagle it might be a kite yeah. or something yeah. one of these but a, a big raptor you know like a big bird of prey uh i get great views of them from my balcony i've been following these things year after year that i live here and i finally got an amazing up close view of one of them when i was riding my bike it was like soaring just like 10 feet above my really? head i could see the individual feathers i could see the the feet the, t the you know the claws everything it was it was amazing and guess where i was riding next to landfill that's right it was at the landfill and so i was overjoyed that i saw this bird and then immediately depressed you know <laughs> not just because of the smell but like oh not you too majestic bird <laughs> you well, have so don't go for I the mean, trash don't go for the easy thing yeah that's not surprising and i mean your reaction was an anthropomania reaction right oh too bad why is it too bad they're getting yeah. an easy meal i mean the thing that might be too bad is that we're changing them as a result so i'm um, I suspect well, yeah. their microbiome, you know, once you've been on a diet of landfill. I was thinking disease, yeah, nutrition, yeah. like it can't then, be You can't know, be microbiome good. Um, feeds into behavior usually in some sort of form if you wait long enough for that to become standard. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a good suspicion that urban coyotes, for people in Europe that aren't familiar with coyotes, they're like small-scale wolves, but they... Uh, are quite comfortable invading cities well invading we invaded them first but now they're they're, they're like, yeah yeah you know giving it back to us the kind of stuff that they get they eat is you know wrappers from fast food and stuff like that and there's some tantalizing but not definitive evidence that because microbiomes do have an effect on behavior generally and there are some bacterial species that at least in dogs are associated with higher aggression that maybe some of the aggressive coyotes that have been a problem 
in some Canadian cities like Vancouver may be a mm -hmm. result of people either deliberately feeding them or inadvertently feeding them. But do you think that goes as deep as the as the microbiome or it's just a uh, socialization? I'm used to getting fed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that kind of thing. Well, I don't it could. know. I mean, it could. But I think it could be the microbiome basis. I mean, I mean, there's definitely a link microbiome and behavior yeah, like a, yeah. for sure. So, I mean, it's there. I, I, I'm, I'm sure you're true. You're right that um, if you're actually feeding coyotes, they come to expect you to feed them like your dog would. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but you know, the, the most intriguing part of that was the famous Darwin's finches in the Galapagos. Now that there are some substantial towns in the Galapagos, uh, a guy named Luis de Leon has done research on what they eat, and the, the finches in the city prefer chips, fries, stuff <laughs> like that. And the, We're not so and different, the, the birds and yeah, I. And the finches in the countryside, though, won't touch it won't touch that stuff. They'll eat the seeds mm -hmm. or whatever that they've evolved to eat. So, you know, the question, which is unanswered so far, is whether they will evolve. I mean, they're famous for evolving bills that suit the diet that they adapt to. Well, maybe uh, right. that's going to happen, but driven by us. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been um, been a crazy kind of season. We, uh, we just... The latest one that's available is on de-extinction, which I've come to think is, um, it's very appealing to think about. Okay, you know, this was I, my question I had on you. Are you for or against? And then like, what do you want to bring back? Let's, <laughs> I want to know. Well, I mean, that's, um, I asked my co-host Nikki Wilson what she wanted to bring back. And of course she came up with something that no one's talked about, the Arctic camel. Because camels evolved in North America first. Okay, there, there you go. There was a huge camel in the Yukon territory up north. Um, she'd like to bring that back. But I think that was, well, she spent time in the Yukon, so she's fond of the ancient camel. But they lived about a million years ago. So, you know, this whole idea, the, the most popular idea is bring back the woolly mammoth. Right, that's the one you hear you, about, yeah. Yeah, you can, and you can... You have, people have been able to reconstruct pretty much all their genome just from those dead ones that he, uh, melt out of the ice as the ice melts. And yeah, and the permafrost and stuff like yeah. that, yeah. So uh, you can get a genome. But, I mean, if you ask me whether I'm for it or against it, I can't deny that the idea of traveling to the north and seeing a herd of woolly mammoths would be a pretty amazing experience. But getting there, I just don't think it's, I don't think it's ever going to happen. And in fact, George Church at MIT, who's leading the Mammoth Project, uh, when he talked to us, he said, well, we're not really calling it a mammoth anymore. We're calling it an Arctic elephant. Mm -hmm. And so the justification. Yeah, yeah, but maybe, um, yes, a hybrid, but maybe, um, you know, 95%, well, 90% Indian elephant and maybe 6%, 7% uh, mammoth. They, they've isolated about 40 some odd genes, the mammoth genes that they've succeeded, I think, in inserting into an Indian elephant genome. Things for an extra fat layer, uh, shaggy fur and so on, that sort of thing to mm -hmm. enable them. To, but see, here's the thing. It's not enough to do all this work and spend all this money so that you have a, an 
entertainment item for people. Hey, yeah. you can come see the woolly mammoth. In fact, we're not even going to put them in the Arctic. We're going to put them in a zoo. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's why else would Paris Hilton invest money in that project? I asked. <laughs> but um, okay, so the, that's the a little worrying. Yeah, the scientists involved use an ecological justification. So mm-hmm. in the north, in the days uh, as the ice age was ending, there were a lot of large mammals uh, grazing on what was much more of a grassy terrain, uh, chewing up the ground so that the permafrost was exposed to cold air all the time and not, you know, being able to melt as easily. A lot of uh, arguments like this to say that we're bringing them back as a, as a step to um, encourage di- biodiversity, but also maybe even fight climate change. Yeah, you know, so, but what that ignores, and they're doing it for the passenger pigeon too. So the passenger pigeon who's a little less known, nonetheless a spectacular bird, a beautiful bird, amazing fast flyer. But they, their main distinction is that there were somewhere between three and five billion of them in the mid-19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many, and, and they once they hatched their nestlings, the adults would be on the move. And they would fly in flocks that would last if you stood in one place, would fly over you for two days, continuously. <laughs> no, no, there, there are really reliable records of that. John James Audubon, the famous artist who painted the, the birds of America in the early, well, 1830s and 40s, actually claimed that he traveled about 80 kilometers one day in the mid-1800s, probably, I guess, by stagecoach or something. Mm-hmm. And the, the sky was... Um, full of passenger pigeons the whole time. So when they landed en masse to feed, and they they liked things like acorns, uh, chestnuts, and stuff like that, they would actually damage or even destroy patches of forest just by their weight, their mass, the amount of dung that they produced. That would I was going to say the mess would be incredible. Apparently, um, like up to maybe half a meter thick. Pigeon shit. I mean, you know, that's a lot. So of you think it's those caves with bats? You know, where they're all you know, you get a million bats that are doing like. But that's yeah. in a cave. At least it's out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> yeah. No, this was, and of course, anyway, enthusiastic hunters just you wouldn't even have to hunt. You just point your shotgun up in the air and you kill twelve with yeah. a shot, <laughs> and then gather them up, and they became a very popular food source. And somehow. Amer- Americans managed to extinguish them completely in about 50 years from yeah. more than 3 billion to zero. Well, again, an ecological argument is being used here that the that damage they did to those forests created succession forests. So they destroy right. an area. The dung, after it killed everything, would then fertilize the soil. And, you know, then you'd get shrubs and then bushes and then trees and and so you, you similar to the natural course of fire, right? Yeah, exactly. Like it clears things out, and you need that sort of destruction rebirth cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so I'll accept that, right? But how do you get there? The only reason they were able to do that is because there were millions and millions of them. And right now you're starting with zero passenger yeah. pigeons. You have a good uh, version of the passenger pigeon genome, but realizing it in the form of an actual bird 
is incredibly difficult. First of all, you have to find a dove, like the rock dove or the band-tailed pigeon, that is as close genetically to the passenger pigeon as you can get. But you have to get sperm and egg carrying passenger pigeon genomes. You have to somehow get that in the reproductive system of one of these modern-day analogs. And then you got to hope that, okay, maybe most of them, uh, well, some would be sperm, some would be eggs, some would carry half the passenger pigeon genome and half the mm-hmm. band-tailed pigeon genome. So, you know, you might get, in the first round, you might get a couple of embryos that are passenger pigeon, and then they hatch. Okay, and they're social birds. Unfortunately, the, the modern pigeon is not. So how are you going to do that? How are you going to make them... How are you going to encourage them? Maybe it's all genetic, but I suspect it's behavioral too. And two, two doesn't get you anywhere, right? <laughs> ten, no. A hundred, no. A thousand, ten thousand. Ten thousand, if you could get ten thousand. Wait, you're saying two is not going to be enough? I'm pretty sure I read the Bible and they had two of every animal. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that is exactly the problem. That, uh, you know, you got to go on accounts that are truthful. So, uh, Okay, let's say you get, let's say you get a thousand. That's going to take decades, mm-hmm. decades minimum. So yeah. you put them in an aviary. of captive breeding. Yeah, so yeah. you put them in an aviary. Okay, in the northeast U.S. where they used to nest, but they're migratory. So you actually need to establish at least a second aviary somewhere to the northwest, so that these birds, when they go through the reproductive cycle will move to a, a different place because that's what they do. And if you're going to regenerate the forest, they have to do that. Well, right. how are you going to do that? How are you going to encourage these birds that don't have a clue to go from one place to another? Well, Somebody in all said, of any sort of landscape that like it's different, like the landscape yeah, is different. Is totally the forests different. are smaller. It's urban. There's the, traffic. The, temp- there's... the temperature is different. Right. Uh, everything is different. The, um, the actually, the I think it's the American chestnuts virtually extinct now. That was one of their favorite foods. But anyway, you know, it comes down to this sort of angels on the head of a pin. How, how do we encourage them to migrate from the aviary one to aviary two? Well, maybe with drones. They'll follow drones. Well, maybe they wouldn't. <laughs> maybe they just disperse, and then you're, oh, I almost swore. It's okay. You could swear on the show. <laughs> we don't have any rules. <laughs> anyway, uh, I just think it's so highly impractical as to be not worth the money that's being put into it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the big arguments against de-extinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of species that are going to go de-extinct, or going to go extinct, probably soon. Why don't we spend this money to prevent that mm-hmm. happening and, and avoid this endless loop of technological innovation and decades of time to bring back something that we're not even really convinced is going to work? Let's... Let's put it into, let's develop some of these reproductive technologies, admittedly. That might be really good because there are a lot of rare birds that you could use as it'd be like in vitro fertilization for mm-hmm. birds. And you could uh, supplement populations. But to bring back the passenger pigeon or the Carolina parakeet or the dodo, it's just romanticism. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting because it it's, it's such a, it almost... You know, it's like a, an analogy for so much, so much of our other, you know, human problems and our use of technology to solve them, right? Like, it's like you have solutions, arguably, that would be more 
impactful uh, for climate change, for example, of just like not driving as much, you know, converting to electric vehicles or something like that. But yet there's still people that are like, no, 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 we'll just do everything the same way we're doing. We'll just build this giant thing to suck out all the carbon or something like this, you know? And it's like, I don't know, it's just, yeah, that, that, that lack of foresight or that hubris of technology that's just like, oh, what's, we'll just throw some technology at it and boom, we'll get these pigeons back and everything will be fine. It'll all work out and it'll be super cool and yay us, look at what we can do. It's kind of a hubris thing, I guess, you know? It is, and it's not limited to technology either. I mean, introducing the cane toad into Australia (laughs) in the hopes that it would rebalance the ecology. You know, come on. I mean, I I can't name them because I can't remember them all, but you could easily come up with 10 examples of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, that's a... But then, you know, our last episode, which is going to come out um, next Tuesday, is a look at fungi, fungi, but not a sort of, you know, let's pile all the science on it. In fact, we have three guests. One is a guy who spent some time hunting morels and like a super competitive, actually somewhat dangerous first guy they met when he and his buddies went up to pick morels in the Yukon was a guy with a shotgun and a pail. And he said, move along. This is my Oh, patch. wow. So, you know, there's that. That's anthropomania yeah. of the highest order. Um, we talked to an artist who uses what she calls the quiet hunt, walking through a forest, looking for fungi of any, any species. But she takes her art students with her to uh, just to sort of sharpen their their visual acuity and the ability to look at a chaotic landscape and 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 sort of appreciate finding the things that you want to see when when the things are so variable in and of mm-hmm. themselves and and so that was a nice uh, you know it's I, I think I've learned this season that uh, the more sort of artistic or non-scientific points of view that we can bring into things the better. And then uh, we have another guy named Rob Dunn, who you might know, who's, I think, at University of North Carolina, who his attitude towards science is more of a um, kind of science of everyday life. So he's interested in how many things like how many fungal spores are you likely to inhale in a day? How many species of fungi might you find in your house? He's found more in this kind of citizen science approach. He's found 40,000 varieties of fungi, which is more than the number of fungi officially recognized as existing in the United States. Oh, wow. So I was going to say, these are like he's finding previously unidentified species. Yeah. And probably, well, and are not well described. (laughs) The artist told us that um, she went to buy a house in Toronto or went to look at a house in Toronto. And in the basement there, she found some cool little mushrooms growing around the base of the toilet in the downstairs bathroom. It's kind of where you'd expect them I to see, grow. Well, you know, I mean, you know, it's the it's a buyer's market. It's a seller's market in Toronto. <laughs> so that was probably considered a, a feature, not a bug. Oh, I'm sure there's a clever <laughs> real know. estate engine out there that was just saw this artist and was like, yeah, this sure. is perfect. Hey, hey i got to show you something <laughs> in the basement. <laughs> yeah, so... So it's been it's been fun, you know. It's a really wide variety of uh, of ideas and, and thoughts. Some serious, some not serious. 
yeah, yeah that's good. I, I the fun the fungi thing I'm super interested in. I was I've been working for a a, a podcast called Big Biology, which is a very good biology podcast. And we interviewed a uh, Toby Kears is her name, and she's a researcher that's working on the fungal networks the that that develop between the plants and the fungi. And I think she's got a, a TED talk or something about it as well. But she was talking about how, you know, there's economics at play here and there's lessons for human economic theory because these fungi can like basically allocate resources and withhold resources to plants. They actually like bargain for a better price, essentially, uh, to different parts of the network. And she's done it in this elegant series of experiments that are just, it's, you know, I'd, obviously I can't remember all the details, but it was really fascinating what they were able to do and show that. So there's somehow like a, a method of, tallying up what you have, who needs what, who wants what, what am I going to get in return? Should I withhold it here and send it over here because I'll get more in return from this one, you know, back. So there's this complex network of buying and selling of resources between plants and fungi. And her point, like her kind of big, you know, hammer home line is like, it's all taking place without what we would call consciousness, you know, without the human consciousness. So what can, what can humans learn from like taking the emotion out of it, I guess, or something like this? I don't know. It's Yeah, that's really cool. What's her name again? Toby Kears. Uh, I think she's based in Amsterdam. Uh, but I'll send you the details when we're done here. Because I think it's yeah, something cool. you'd find fascinating. And and she has the citizen science angle as well, because they've started this thing called the SPUN Network. And SPUN is an acronym. Um, and I can't remember what for. But they're, yeah, they're looking for people to sample soils because they're trying to conserve or they want to, you know, understand what the biodiversity of these things is out there. Because it's, again, the implications for climate change and stuff, what we're learning about how these things are sequestering carbon and all that kind of stuff is huge. So, yeah, it made me think of it. It's a real anthropomania story. It definitely is. Uh, so there was a recent report from um, a guy in England arguing that uh, they'd been recording electrical uh, impulses in mycelia of fungi. Yeah, I saw this one. And are convinced that they they are it's they have a language and they'd identified fifty words. <laughs> For I mean, listeners that didn't see the face, you know, it was a pretty hard eye roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like uh, honestly, please give me some rationale for why you're calling these words. Yeah. Anyway, um, our guest Rob Dunn had a really interesting take on this. The um, the scientist involved uh, doesn't want to do it. Mm. I have no comment <laughs> on that. But uh, Rob Dunn said, you know, I obviously would need to see more evidence of this, but what it does do is signal that we just barely understand fungi. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, I mean, maybe there's signaling that we're not aware of and we're not sure what it's meaning. And maybe it isn't words, but it is a reminder that, uh, you know, that hubris that you uh, referred to, we need to stamp that out and we need to um, back off a bit with our, our overwhelming tendency to label all life, not just wildlife, but plants, fungi, everything that shares the earth with us with some sort of human attribute. Mm -hmm. You know, my favorite, I might have told you this story when we last talked, but it, it just summarizes it perfectly for me. True story. Uh, a farmer uh, uh, who had a hen house in England, fox broke in one night, killed 20 chickens, ate one, or took away one. And the farmer was convinced the fox did it with spite. <laughs> 
So, so I'm thinking, okay, so let's let's just dig deeper in this. What is going through the fox's mind? I hate that fox. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I'm going to screw him up because I'm going to kill all his chickens. I can't give him the middle finger because I only have paws. <laughs> but I can kill all his chickens and I'll, I'll eat one. Yeah. Like, come on. That's like giving the coyote enough credit too, right? Because then it's like... This assumes that he, yeah, has this negative human attribute to waste the resources that, you know, he could go in and take one one a day for 20 days, you know? Again, we give him the, the human attribute of sort of this rationale and stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I don't like he it. Doesn't need, he doesn't need our human attributes, yeah, yeah. you know? He's got a life. There's plenty of evidence that uh, foxes uh, will do this even with wild birds. So they'll come across a nesting colony of terns, and this has been shown many times, and just go on a killing mm -hmm. spree and not eat, no, come anywhere to eating all of them. But, you know, and it's not really, it's not really understood why they do that, but it's not to spite right, the farmer. Right, yeah. I think wolves, there's, anyway. wolves will do it as well. They'll kill, I think, a number of the herd if they can or something like that. I, yeah. I've heard that. Maybe there's a finely tuned killer urge that sometimes you know, goes over the edge yeah. a little bit. I don't know. Maybe they were planning to come back. Yeah. Maybe the fox was going to take a dead chicken every day. He doesn't know the farmer's going to clean right. them up. I mean, come on. It's just... But I mean, I wonder then, just to, you know, I'll play a little bit of devil's advocate here. I see... Yeah, you can try it. <laughs> That's what I do. Uh, okay. I can see a usefulness in some situations for communicating findings or you know the science about animals in in that way like using metaphor right to to explain science or so like what's going to get more people interested in fungi fungi might be speaking i mean we do it with whales too all the time too right but there's probably more of an argument for it's a language in whales and dolphins but okay now i'm the hitting a wall with my devil's advocate but <laughs> yeah. i could see i could see an argument for you know metaphor and 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 using it as a as a way of understanding and a way of teaching because i just don't know that, that how you know you only can experience things well, the way you experience them so we're kind of trapped to always view things through a human lens we can try as much as we can to remove ourselves but when we speak to each other we're going to use those that vernacular i guess i don't know i have a couple of things to say one i hope the devil has better advocates than you <laughs> Second, yeah, you're right. And communication, though, would be a, a good word. Right. Uh, that would be more acceptable in the case of the fungi, for sure, I think. But it, the, the, this pervasive effort of humans to see all other wildlife in their own image uh, is more destructive than helpful, mm -hmm. generally. Like, for every example you could give me of where it's a good thing, like... You see those, all, there's always a video of an animal like an, an elephant that had, was rescued 20 years ago and is back in the forest and living, living mm -hmm. wild. And then his, his, the person who nursed it back to health appears on the scene and the elephant's uh, delirious right, with joy yeah. you know, and excited and everything. Well, that's good. But you don't have to dress that up with fake language, right? You just say, yeah, they're smart animals. They remember this person. This person was good to them. Uh, if the person hadn't been good to them, the elephant would stamp all over them. That's Those are sort of natural things, it seems to me. It's not, I just don't think, I think you, 
you can do it if you want, but you got to be you got to be aware of mm-hmm. what you're doing. And you got to be aware that when when you call a weasel a vicious killer, what the hell does that mean? That means that it's a predator and it likes to kill as efficiently and quickly as mm-hmm. possible. And so somehow it looks vicious. Like they're killing it mm-hmm. to eat it. Are we vicious eaters? <laughs> like do you ever go to a, you know, all you can eat rib place? <laughs> Those are vicious eaters. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, yeah. it does highlight that there are similarities between us and animals. And I mean, that's another important thing then to remember is that we're not so far removed, right? They have memory, they have yeah. social structures, they have needs that they yes. acquire in different ways, just like us. So maybe that's another way then to like, rather than thrust our human, complex human stories onto them. And I guess that's kind of it too, is that you're like, I'm upset about something or this bothers me that this weasel is eating all these lovely birds that I care about. Therefore, he's the bad guy. He's vicious. And the birds are, you know, the poor, innocent ones. But it's like we, like it, we all have these same, you know, we're not so, so different from these, from these animals. So you can highlight yeah. the similarities, but just get your, own, <laughs> get your own baggage out of there, I guess. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, you get coyotes... Um kind of being seen on city streets. And I would say that half the citizenry would like to have them called. Mm-hmm. And maybe two thirds, three quarters even. Why? Because they want to let their cat right. out to kill to kill a few songbirds. And like this is like triple land yeah. Canadian. So we'll kill the coyotes so they don't kill my cat who's killing the birds. Um, why are the coyotes there? Well, it's because of us. They, they get food to eat. They are safe. We're on their territory. And I mean, it just goes mm-hmm. on and on. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I do try to be reasonable and I, I have some of those same feelings, but there's a big difference between, oh, wow, that tiger cub is so cute. And uh, wow, that's an impressive animal. Mm-hmm. Right. I just feel those are ones kind of cute. I mean, are you serious? Sure. It's got big eyes and a high forehead. We respond to that because we're humans, and but to extrapolate that to uh, puppies and kittens, um, sure, do it, but acknowledge at the time that yeah, it really has nothing to like. They don't think they're. Cute. <laughs> I don't know. We haven't deciphered dog language yet. Maybe that's what they're saying to each. <laughs> no, that's true. I I can't. I've given up trying to decipher my dog's language because he. He speaks a foreign yeah. tongue. As far as so knows. this is probably, you know, we'll say, check out the episode on wildlife documentaries because this is looping back to that. I'm sure all of this comes up. You know, we did we did one, yeah, we did one last year on plants. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a lot of things that s- stuck about that. One was one of our guests said, you know, whenever I'm uh, giving a lecture, I first thing I ask the students is, did you notice the plants outside? outside the lecture hall and they never do and he said that's because people treat them as yeah scenery yeah and yet and yet they're because we think they're inert but he said they're more like very slow animals and they're doing all this they're doing amazing things you know like a corn crop it is being attacked by you know an insect that preys on i think that's the right word the corn plant so the plant releases pheromones that attract parasitic wasps. Mm-hmm. Parasitic wasps lay their eggs in the caterpillars, 
there's a bit of a delay, of course, and so a few corn plants hit hit the dust. But it's pretty super amazing mm-hmm. to me. Like you think of the evolutionary process, the sort of hit and miss, random mutation, evolutionary process that actually ended up with that kind of system. That's pretty amazing. And they'll they'll release other airborne chemicals to alert other plants what's mm-hmm. going on. So our ignorance of plants because of our attitude toward them that they're not scary they don't rush at us they don't do this they don't do that so we ignore them i mean that's you know we we also had an episode this year on insects and the what some people are calling the insect Mm -hmm. apocalypse The, the insect populations are dropping dramatically and i bet you not one person in 10 realizes how other than honeybees realizes how important insects are to our way of life, mm-hmm. not just fertilizing, flo- pollinating flowers and uh, honey, producing honey and so on, but everything. Uh, Insect-eating birds in huge declines in eastern North America, at least. And, um, you know, it's a problem. And part of the problem is insects make us, some insects, many insects, make us mm-hmm. feel uncomfortable. Do you, do you like finding cockroaches in your kitchen? No, you don't. Would you be fascinated by a praying mantis walking up your arm? Yeah, you would. You know they're not going to mm-hmm. do anything to you. Really, the cockroach isn't either. But somehow cockroaches scuttle. Well, and I, I think there's an association with uncleanliness and disease and whether that's true true or not, right? Like it's not the cockroach that's selling, giving you the disease. I mean, you might be able to get disease from cockroaches, some bacteria and stuff, but yeah. yeah. No, there's that. There's... But then, you know... There is a visceral reaction to lots, it, though. Yeah. And actually, the, the question we posed in this episode was, do you think that that's going to be a barrier to societies acting, actually taking note of the fact that insects are dying at an alarming rate? And, you know, there have been kind of cool citizen science experiments, or although they were scientists doing them, where they would run a car up and down a... a measured stretch of highway both directions night and day uh, different weather different seasons and just count the number of insects that are splattered on the windshield and it's dropped dramatically mm-hmm. i mean you know uh, north americans know this because you know distances are much greater than europe and so a road trip here could be 400k well i mean when you used to do a, a road trip of that distance every time you stop for gas you'd have to yeah. Clean the windshield. Yeah, you don't have to do that so yeah. much anymore. Yeah, yeah. That was one of my favorite, actually, stories from <laughs> from that episode, is that the idea of just using this car as a field sampling tool. But it makes perfect sense, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it does make a lot yeah. of sense. Um, and there was, there was one question that I had written down, too, before as we wind down here, uh, that was about the insects, you know, and the insect apocalypse. Because, like you said, I don't think people realize how much we depend on them. For, for all of these natural processes that happen, even just getting rid of decaying and dead things, you know, like imagine all the pileup that would be if there wasn't bugs to, to eat all that stuff. But then linking it to the de-extinction thing, it seems like insects would be kind of the prime candidates for like, we could get those genomes and if needed, quickly bump up populations in, in a pinch. Like I'm not advocating for that. Like we said, this seems like the technology thing of like, don't worry about it, and then we'll just technologically solve it. I, I, I realize that's what I'm saying. <laughs> but, you know, they breed super quickly. 
I think the genome would be less complex in terms of making hybrids yeah. with, you know, existing insects. Like I think those species barriers might be a bit wobblier. That's a total speculation. I don't have the, the, the knowledge or data on that, but it just seemed like this would be one of those, those ways where, you know, just linking two <laughs> two episodes that you've done like this, maybe that's a use for some of this, you know, reproductive technology, even just for, uh, supplementing human protein, right? The, rather than having 23 billion chickens, I mean, the, the idea of mass producing bugs for flour and different things, that that's coming. That's something that's on the on the horizon as well. Yeah, I think so. The second issue first about supplementing human diets, um, that's where the um, kind of uh, insectophobia mm -hmm. comes in because probably what you'll have to do is you know, make it part of the protein content of something that doesn't look exactly. Good. Yeah, doesn't resemble. An Don't insect. tell them. In the first case, though, um, you know, thinking about de-extinction, the, the issue with um, the insect apocalypse is, is the environmental overuse of pesticides. It's climate change, and the question will will always become, as it would with any attempt to de-extinct any species. Where are you going to mm -hmm. put them? You know, where are they going to live? Because nothing is the same as it was even, what, 25 yeah. years ago. But as a tool to prevent extinction, I feel like bugs would be, we could do a lot to save bugs. And I mean, it's not a great yeah, idea to just like every year have to like remake all the, bu all the bugs and put them back out there. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, who knows where we're heading? The, the really big question is... Are we going to get deeper and deeper involved in bringing back from extinction, preventing extinction, repopulating mm -hmm. species of all kinds? I mean, where's the line between what's natural and what isn't mm -hmm. natural? It's, I don't know. It's, uh, it's already so... You see, my dog even... Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a very blurry line for sure. And I mean, that's what's great about anthropomania too, is that the, some of these, you know, I'm listening to these episodes and some of these questions like this, what is the, this line? You, you come up and yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating show. So I encourage everybody to listen to it. Do you know, I'll just end us with this. Do you know the, the story of the screw worm? No. So there was a basically a it's one of the you know first examples I had heard of of using insects to control uh, or manipulating insects in a way to control a pest. So the screw worm was like a it was a type of bot fly that would you know decimate um, you know, herds of of cattle and stuff in the American Southwest, I believe. And the screw worm only mates once a season. So once it's mated with one male, the female, it won't mate again. So what they did, and I think this was an initiative by the U.S. Army, you know, and the government scientists and stuff like that. They blasted all of these, they would breed these male screw worms and blast them with radiation to basically make them infertile. And then in these giant cargo planes, just release these flies over the fields, just in massive, massive waves, just send them out there. They would breed with all the females, but because they were infertile, no, no eggs were produced, and then they basically solved the screw worm pro uh, problem. And I'm pretty sure that to this day, they still do release radiated males, not in the levels that they used to. But I always found that a fascinating story. It's like, I was interested in bot flies because I'm that kind of weird person. And, uh, and then just, I came across this story when I was doing my undergrad and I was like, this is such a fascinating, one of these anthropomania stories, you know, of... That actually worked. It actually worked. I mean, I don't know, maybe right? in maybe in another yeah. 50 years or something, we'll, we'll be like, 
oh shit, what did we do? <laughs> We've actually created some kind of, you know, monster bot fly or something. I don't know. But uh, it seems to have worked because I think the, the program was started in the 50s or something like this. Well, it's good to end on a note like that. There we go. Okay. Well, Jay, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, thanks for making Anthropomania 2 with pleasure. your uh, co-host, Nikki. Uh, it's a really great show. So I encourage people to listen and take a listen to the show notes uh, to find out where to get it. Uh, thanks for having me and we'll talk again in 2023. Sounds great. See you then. Once again, many, many thanks to Jay for coming on, for being my most frequent guest, uh, for always offering up some time to speak with me uh, and to speak with you, my audience. Uh, always, always a great time. Thank you, Jay. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, look for Anthropomania wherever you get podcasts or in our show notes. It will be linked there. And then please, as always, head on over to the website, dobradforyou.wordpress.com. Get in touch with me. Get in touch with the show. Give us a follow wherever you're getting your podcasts. Give us a rating. Give us a like. All of that good stuff really helps out. And until next time, take care and we'll see you then. Bye for now.